Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. All right, thanks for tuning in to episode nine of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. Uh, and I'm excited to bring to you a six-part episode on trauma anesthesia. Um, I'm currently on my trauma rotation right now. Um, so then I've been reading a lot and then trying to compile a bunch of notes for you guys. So then that if you are dealing with a trauma rotation or if you're uh, handling a trauma case, you have some background information to kind of get you started on handling these kind of patients. Okay, so as I said, um, it's going to be a six-parter. This first one, we're going to talk about uh, basically the physiology um, related to trauma, more specifically things like the hemostasis, the blood products, thromboelastography, as well as the the unique physiology that occurs during trauma. So yeah, I'm very excited to bring this to you guys. And uh, one other thing, uh, if you notice a different sound quality in uh, the the audio. I did just get a new microphone as well as a new recording device. So hopefully it sounds great and is, you know, somewhat pleasing to your ear uh, as you learn a little bit more anesthesia with me, okay? Before we begin, I, if you have some time, I'd really appreciate it if you take some time to fill out the pre-survey uh, at this moment. I'd be greatly appreciated. If not, that's cool. All right, with all that said, let's go ahead and get started. So we're going to start off with talking about hemostasis and give you like a brief overview of the normal physiology, which is going to be important when we talk about the pathophysiology. And to be completely honest, I am not a big fan of hematology. So all this stuff, um, I really had to sit down and review again because I remember like the big, big ideas, but then I don't remember like the nitty gritty uh, details. So let's go over that with you guys. And so we're all on the same page. So when you have tissue damage, right, there's, and you start bleeding, there's usually two things that, that occurs to help stop the bleeding. So first is primary hemostasis, which is the platelet plug formation. And next is the secondary hemostasis, which is a follows the coagulation cascade and kind of links all that together in the, the fibrin clot. So pretty much strengthens the, the clot to stop the bleeding, right? So those are the main things. And let's kind of uh, talk about it one by one. So primary hemostasis or the platelet plug formation phase, there's different stages in this. Okay, so first there's the injury. Then there's exposure, adhesion, activation, and lastly, aggregation. So first off, injury is, so as uh, the name suggests, is when you have the initial insult, which results in endothelial damage. So the first thing that happens, you have vasoconstriction via neurostimulation reflex, and you release endothelin uh, from the endothelial cells, which usually happens when the, the cells are damaged. Okay, so that's the initial phase. Next is exposure. So the damaged endothelial cells uh, would have exposed collagen. And then you have the substance called the von Willebrand factor from the Weibull Palladi bodies that binds onto the exposed collagen, which is going to be important for other platelets to kind of aggregate, right, in the next, uh, next few steps. 
And in addition to the von Willebrand factor binding to the collagen, you have platelets that also release alpha granules that also bind to the collagen. So the idea is, is setting up the stage for more platelets to kind of get together. So next phase is the adhesion stage. So during adhesion, the cell surface of the platelets have something called a GP1B receptor. This binds onto the von Willebrand factor and sticks to the site of damage. So when this happens, the platelets undergoes conformational change. And when this happens, it releases ADP, which helps platelets adhere to the endothelium and also releases other substances as well. So TXA2, FACT5, serotonin, epinephrine, and vasopressin. And it's important to note at a cellular level, on the agonist, it targets the phospholipase C, which releases calcium, which further catalyzes the granulation, it changes the platelet shape, and then it makes them a little bit stickier. And uh, calcium is also necessary to for the coagulation cascade to, to work in the secondary hemostasis, but we'll get that to that later. Uh, next is activation. So the ADP, which was released in the previous step, induces expression of another receptor, GP2B3A, on the cell surface. And this is going to be important for the next step, aggregation, when fibrinogen it binds to the GP2B3A receptor, which then links the platelets together. And this forms the plug. So again, this is a very temporary solution. This plug is not very stable and is easily dislodged. So that's why we need the secondary hemostasis. All right, let's uh, go ahead and review everything that we kind of just talked about for primary hemostasis. So first, you have the injury. Uh, which uh, results in endothelial damage and exposes collagen. And once the collagen is exposed, the von Willebrand factors from the Weibo-Palladi bodies binds onto that collagen. And as more platelets comes by, it, the GP1B receptor on the platelets binds onto the von Willebrand factor and sticks to the site of damage. It causes the platelets to undergo conformational change and which releases different things like ADP, TXA2, factor 5, serotonin, epinephrine, vasopressin. And the ADP induces the expression of GP2B3A receptors in a cell surface. And that receptor binds onto fibrinogen, which links a bunch of platelets together and bam, plug. Okay, so when this happens, um, there is a sort of balance act that occurs. So there's the coagulation kind of uh, and aggregation stuff, but there's also things that kind of uh, prevent it from going together. So on the pro-aggregation factors, so there's uh, TXA2 release from the, the platelets. TXA2 decreases the blood flow and it increases the platelet aggregation. So that's the pro-aggregation factors. Anti-aggregation factors, things like PGI2 and nitrous oxide, which is released by the endothelial cells, um, this conversely increases the blood flow and decreases platelet aggregation. So you have this push and pull sort of uh, things that happens during the, the tissue damage. And it's important because you don't want to be hypercoagulable, so then it has two things to kind of help balance each other out. Okay, so that's primary hemostasis. All right, next part 
is secondary hemostasis, which is uh, the coagulation cascade. And the idea and the major goal is to stabilize the plug. Because as we kind of talked about earlier, the platelet plug itself is not stable. So you need something else to hold it in place. And the major thing is you, the major end goal is to increase the thrombin to change fibrinogen to fibrin, which will cross-link and strengthen the clot. So that's how you're going to strengthen and stabilize the plug. Okay, so let's kind of talk about it in a little bit more detail, especially in the extrinsic pathway. So as we kind of talked about during primary hemostasis, there's a bunch of calcium that's released from the platelets. And that calcium activates factor 7 to change it to factor 7A, or activated 7. Now, factor 7A, it combines with the tissue factor, which is released when uh, the tissue is damaged. And that complex converts factor 10 to 10A. So now we're moving on to the combined pathway. Now from 10A, it combines with factor 5, which was originally released from the platelets, to create a prothrombinase complex, which changes prothrombin, or otherwise known as factor 2, to thrombin, uh, which is factor 2A. And thrombin, it amplifies the cascade by activating even more factors, 5, 8, and 11. And from here, the idea is to make even more thrombin. Okay, so factor 9A and 8A, it forms a complex called the 10A's complex on uh, activated platelets, uh, which activates even more factor 10, makes more prodrominase complexes, and then again, it makes more thrombin. Because uh, in the end, thrombin is the thing that converts fibrinogen to fibrin. And that's the thing that we want to stabilize the, the platelet plug, right? Because when fibrinogen is activated to fibrin, it activates factor 13, which crosslinks the fibrin monomers, okay? So there's a lot of stuff that, <laughs> that, that occurs in secondary hemostasis. So I would encourage you to kind of just look up uh, like a diagram um, or just listen to this a few times. But again, the main thing for this for secondary hemostasis, the goal was to stabilize the plug and to basically make a bunch of thrombin to change fibrinogen to fibrin, uh, which will cross-link and strengthen the clot via factor 13. Okay, so that's secondary hemostasis. That's the main goal of secondary hemostasis. So that's the coagulation part. Now let's talk about determination of coagulation. And there's generally three molecules that essentially shuts down the coagulation cascade by inhibiting the factors. And the three are antithrombin, TF pathway inhibitor, and activated protein C. So antithrombin, or usually it's abbreviated as AT, this, as the name suggests, inhibits thrombin. And in addition to this, it also uh, inhibits factors 10A, 9A, uh, 11A, and 7A. So essentially, antithrombin shuts down thrombin and other uh, coagulation factors. Okay, next, TF pathway inhibitor. Basically, it just inhibits factor 10A. So this is the beginning of the common pathway. And lastly, activated protein C, 
is activated by the thrombin thrombomodulin complex from the um, endothelial cells, which cleaves and inactivates factors 5A and 7A. So again, to review, antithrombin inhibits thrombin, otherwise known as factor 2A, as well as a bunch of other uh, coagulation factors. TF pathway inhibitor, it inhibits factor 10A, which is at the beginning of the common pathway. And lastly, activated protein C, which is activated by the thrombin thrombomodulin complex, and it cleaves and inactivates 5A and 7A. And lastly, uh, we're going to talk about fibrinolysis. So basically when the endothelial cells is damaged, it releases TPA, uh, which converts plasminogen to plasmin. And this cleaves the fibrin mesh, destroys coagulation factors, and creates degradation products. So for example, things like D-dimer. And if you have any issues, like kind of remem remembering that TPA causes the destruction of fibrin meshes, you can think about um, when patients have a non-hemorrhagic stroke, you can give TPA to kind of break up any clots that's causing like the ischemic strokes or whatever. So fibrinolysis, endothelial cells releases TPA, converts plasminogen to plasmin, and the plasmin cleaves the fibrin mesh. Okay, so that was a basic review of the uh, physiology. Hopefully that wasn't too uh, complicated. Again, I'm sorry, it's, hematology is not my, my favorite uh, subject, but you know, hopefully yeah, you got something out of it, okay? So next, um, we're gonna move on and talk about the different blood products very uh, briefly, okay? So the major blood products that we can give, uh, at least here in the United States, is um, packed red blood cells or PRBCs, platelets, fresh frozen plasma, as well as cryoprecipitate. So essentially, in terms of resuscitation, the, the best thing you can do is to give whole blood. And this is a practice done in the military, and it's uh, very effective for resuscitation. But in civilian practice, the blood products are usually fractionated. And I believe this is done just because it's easier to store. As opposed to getting whole blood, you can have like a bunch of soldiers line up and just donate blood if they need it. This is not something that we can force people to do in the, in the civilian world. Um, so the easier way to store all these blood products is uh, by fractioning them. So that's why uh, it, it comes in a separate, separate components in, uh, in the regular uh, hospitals and whatnot. So um, let's talk about uh, each of these briefly one by one. So PRBCs, or packed red blood cells, when you're transfusing the uh, red blood cells, the, the major goal is to increase the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. Because obviously if you're bleeding, you're losing the blood and you're reducing the, the ability to transport oxygen uh, throughout the body, right? So that's the major goal, increase oxygen carrying capacity. The secondary goal is to increase the intravascular volume. But again, you can do this with other fluids like crystalloids and colloids as well. And uh, lastly, it's important to note that if you transfuse one unit of PRBCs, you can expect to have an increase in hemoglobin by 1 to 1 1.5 grams per deciliter. Okay, next product is platelets. And usually you use this uh, specifically to treat thrombocytopenia, but 
obviously if if you're suspecting some sort of other disorder going on that actually might make the situation worse but in, in case of a normally normal healthy person in a, a case of trauma low platelets thrombocytopenia uh, it is a reasonable option to to give and usually the threshold to transfuse platelets is a little bit less than uh, 50,000 cells per millimeters cubed or basically just less than 50k okay next is fresh frozen plasma or ffp and ffp is the fluid portion that's obtained from single unit of whole blood that was frozen within six hours of collection and the great thing about ffp is it contains all the coagulation factors that that you need except for platelets so if a patient has a coagulation factor deficiencies, this would be a great option to give. And obviously in trauma, when you have issues of coagulopathy, this would be a great thing to, to give as well. And uh, we'll kind of discuss that momentarily. And generally, the, the threshold for transfusion is a PT or PTT that's 1.5 times greater than the normal value. And another indication for transfusing FFP is for warfarin reversal. Okay, and the, the last blood product that we're going to discuss is cryoprecipitate. This is the fraction of plasma that precipitates when FFP is thawed. So it's useful to treating hemophilia A that's not responsive to desmopressin. And this is because it has high levels of uh, factor eight. And it's also great for patients that have uh, hypo hypofibrinogen <laughs> um, basically patients with low fibrin because um, cryoprecipitate generally has more fibrinogen than FFP so things like if a patient's in DIC for example where you have a decreased fibrinogen uh, this would be a, a good but product to give okay so the next section we're going to talk about the thrombolacogram or abbreviated as TEG and this is something that helps you determine the coagulation status of a patient. And it helps you determine uh, which kind of problem of coagulation that's happening during the trauma. And uh, it helps guide you on which blood product that you need to give. So to be honest, this is something that, that it took forever for me to kind of understand. Um, and something that I didn't really learn in med school. So it's a uh, definitely new, new thing that I learned in residency. So if that's your case, you're not alone in that. So again, the tag is good, good to determine what's the main source of the coagulopathy. So you know how to address it. Okay. So if uh, you can, I'll try to describe it to you, the, the diagram, but. I invite you to take a look at the show notes so you can take a look at the diagrams or maybe you can just Google it. But then the thing that a lot of people liken the, the graph to is looks like a normal tag looks like a, a wine glass. So if you can imagine a wine glass, you have the stem, the narrow stem going up and when it gets to the cup part, it kind of branches out a little bit and it goes a little bit straight up, basically like that. So there are three main phases of the tag. So the pre-clot phase, formation, and stability. Or the other way you can break it up is coagulation phase and the fibrinolysis phase. So starting with the coagulation phase, the stem of the wine glass is usually just like a straight line. And this period is usually called the R time or the reaction time. 
And this is the time it takes for the clot to start forming. Basically, the amount of time it takes to mobilize the coagulation cascade. And the normal R time is three to nine minutes. But if it's anything longer than that, then it means that there is a problem with the coagulation factors. Because again, it means that it's deficient in coagulation factors to start putting together that clot. So the treatment for a prolonged R time is FFP, because as you recall from the previous section, FFP has a lot of coagulation factors, and because you have a long R time, which is a problem with coagulation factors, you treat it with FFP. Okay, next uh, part of the graph is when the wine glass part actually starts. So it starts to deviate from the the stem. So there's two main parts of this. The k value and the alpha angle. So the k value is the time it takes until the clot reaches its fixed strength. So the speed of the initial clot. And a normal k value is 0.5 to three minutes. So anything that's outside this、uh, reference range is there's a problem with the fibrinogen. So like. If the k k value is long, is prolonged, it means that you're not having you don't have enough fibrinogen to turn into fibrin and to pretty much make the fibrin clot, right? So it's just taking a longer time for it to to reach its fixed state. So if you don't have the building blocks to form the fibrin clot, the fibrinogen, then you're gonna have a longer prolonged k value. So the treatment. For a abnormal K value is cryoprecipitate, and as you recall, cryoprecipitate has more fibrinogen as opposed to FFP, so that's why you give cryo for a prolonged K value. The next thing that's associated with K value is the alpha angle, and this one specifically is the speed of fibrin accumulation, and. Pretty much, this is like the angle in which the wine glass kind of deviates. How steep it is, basically. The normal alpha angle is fifty-three to seventy-two degrees. And as we kind of discussed for the K value, if they don't have enough fibrin, then the angle is going to be very shallow, right? Because you you don't have the fibrinogen to quickly come together and form the clot. So if you have deficiency in fibr-、uh, fibrinogen, then you'll see like a shallow angle. Right and、um, again, if to treat the lack of fibrinogen, you're going to use cryoprecipitate. Okay, and the last phase is the、uh, maximum amplitude, and this is the highest vertical amplitude of the tag. So basically, the maximum width of the wine glass, and the normal width is fifty、uh, to seventy millimeters, and generally a low maximum amplitude generally suggests a problem with Platelets and kind of makes sense because if you don't have enough platelets, you're not going to have a strong clot, right? So,、um, in order to treat a low maximum amplitude, you're going to give platelets and or DDAVP. Okay, so that's the coagulation phase of the tag. So again, to start off, you have the R time, which is the time to start forming a clot, and abnormal R times is associated with Deficient coagulation factors, so you treat it with FFP.、Uh, next part is the K value and the alpha angle. 
Uh, K value is the time until the clot reaches its fixed strength. And again, it's a problem of fibrinogen, so you treat it with cryoprecipitate. And, and uh, same thing for the alpha angle is the speed of fibrin accumulation. And it's also a problem with fibrinogen, and you treat that as uh, with cryoprecipitate as well. And lastly, maximum amplitude, the highest vertical amplitude to detect. And this is a problem with platelets, so you give, to treat it, you give more platelets and or DDAVP. Okay, so that's the coagulation phase of the tech. And again, if this doesn't make any sense to you, I, I encourage you to take a look at the show notes so you can look at a diagram or you can Google it as well, okay? And the last part of the tech is like from the the width of the, the, the wine glass to the end. This is called the LY30 or the lysis at 30 minutes. And this is a percentage of amplitude reduction 30 minutes after the maximum amplitude. The normal is 0 to 8%. But if you have more than that, it means that you're having a lot of fibrinolysis. So that's the problem, excess fibrinolysis. And to treat that, you're going to give TXA and or aminocaproic acid to kind of prevent the fibrin mesh from being broken down. Okay, so that's the last part in fibrinolysis. If it's greater than 8% amplitude reduction, that means that there's excess fibrinolysis and you treat that with TXA and or aminocaproic acid. Okay, thanks for hanging in there for the last part of this episode. And uh, this is, uh, we're going to talk about trauma physiology. So we're going to finally get to the fun stuff. Okay, and topics in this thing is going to be lethal triad, or otherwise known as the vicious cycle, trauma-induced uh, coagulopathy, or TIC, and hyperfibrinolysis and tissue hypoperfusion. So the first thing, lethal triad, and this is something I'm sure you, uh, you've learned already, uh, but we'll go over it again. And the main components of this triad are acidosis, hypothermia, and dilutional coagulopathy. So basically, if you have any of these things, it's going to make the patient bleed more and die faster. So you want to correct these things as, as to the best of your ability. So for example, if a patient comes in of a trauma, there's lots of hemorrhage, lots of blood loss, you're losing coagulation factors, you're losing platelets, and that causes the coagulopathy. And as the patient goes into hemorrhagic shock, you are having a global hypoperfusion of oxygen, right? So in in that environment, the, the body pretty much makes a bunch of lactate and overall it just gets acidotic, right? So acidosis and plus if there's any hypothermia involved, it causes the coagulation factors and platelets to not work correctly. So that further causes more coagulopathy and causes more hemorrhage and then it just keeps happening. More hemorrhage, you get more acidotic and your coagulation factors and platelets keep getting worse and worse, and you just keep bleeding, keep bleeding, keep bleeding until the patient dies. So again, those three main things are super important to address during a trauma. Acidosis, hypothermia, and dilutional coagulopathy. Okay, uh, speaking of coagulopathy, uh, the next part is trauma-induced coagulopathy, or TIC. So the main points of this, as the base deficit increases, the coagulopathy increases. And as recall, base deficit is basically the lack of base that's in the blood. So it means that there's more acid in the blood, 
which means that the patients are hypoperfusing, having less oxygen delivery, right? So as we kind of talked about previously, if patients are more acidotic, the coagulopathy increases, right? So as the base deficit increases due to hypoperfusion, it actually increases the plasma thrombomodulin and decreases protein C. So as a result, it's going to worsen the coagulopathy and it's going to as, and you're going to see an increase in PTT and PT. So when you're, you have a patient uh, coming in for a trauma, not only is it a good idea to get a sample for your tag, but also get uh, coagulation studies as well. So you're able to kind of uh, address these things as early on as possible. Okay, and the early onset of uh, trauma-induced coagulopathy, it means increased mortality. Okay, so those are the main points. Essentially, the pathophysiology behind it is related to the presence of severe metabolic acidosis. So this is uh, usually defined as base deficits that's greater than 6, or greater than negative 6, or I guess less than negative 6. And this, this is a sign of global tissue hypoperfusion. So when this is this happens, the endothelium releases thrombomodulin and activated protein C, as we kind of talked about earlier, which prevents thrombosis. And the thrombomodulin, it binds to thrombin, which prevents the thrombin from cleaving fibrinogen to fibrin, which is important for the formation of the fibrin mesh, as you recall. And lastly, the thrombomodulin thrombin complex, it activates protein C, inhibits the extrinsic coagulation pathway through effects on cofactors 5 and 8. So overall, hypoperfusion ultimately prevents the formation of fibrin meshes and it inhibits coagulation factors. Okay, the last topic is hyperfibrinolysis and tissue hypoperfusion. And as we kind of alluded to previously, the tissue plasminogen activator, TPA, is released from the endothelium during uh, tissue damage. And this cleaves plasminogen to make plasmin to initiate fibrinolysis. And and again, it's this kind of part of the autoregulatory pathways that occurs during trauma to um, the endothelial cells. And lastly, they have the uh, activator protein C, or APC, that inhibits plasminogen activator inhibitor, so it's like a double negative, proteins, which increases the amount of TPA and causes even more uh, fibrinolysis. So long story short, TPA makes turns plasminogen to plasmin and increases fibrinolysis. And this is increased during uh, tissue damage. Okay, that wraps up this episode. I thank you very much for hanging into this episode. This is kind of a little bit technical, a little confusing, uh, at least for, for me when I was learning this stuff. I, I not, again, as, as I said, not too big of a fan. So I hope it, it helped out. And if you think it did, uh, I encourage you to fill out the post survey or, you know, contact me during in uh, social media or whatever email, whatever, to let me know if uh, I'm doing a good job or not, or any constructive feedback. Yeah, so um, the thing I have for you today, the fun fact is, sliced bread was first manufactured by machine and sold in 1920s by the Chilikov Baking Company in Missouri. So yeah, uh, do what you will of that information. (laughs) All right, uh, again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you tune in for the next few episodes on trauma. 
and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Bye.